Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Friday, December 12th, 2014. Fighting a little bit of a bug today. Just gonna have to suffer through. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles to see if what people are saying actually squares with what God's Word says in context or if uh, the uh, most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, and authors uh, put forward by the evangelical industrial complex are rightly handling God's word and preaching the truth, pointing us to Christ, calling us to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, all through what Jesus has accomplished for us. And over and again, we find that, well, people are creative, innovative, um, willfully obstinate in refusing to actually pay attention to what God's Word says. You know, what's funny is is that I really don't think that uh, society would tolerate people doing to, you know, popular movies or stories uh, with, you know, uh, you know, uh, books and things like that. That I don't think they put up with it the way uh, evangelicals put uh, well put up with people who just mangle God's word. I mean, could you imagine? You know, somebody strip mining. You know, the Star Wars story for life applications and not paying attention to the context of different scenes in the Star Wars movie and just making stuff up, ripping things out of context, and just you know, and then trying to teach from it that way as if somehow. You could coherently understand the Star Wars stories by the way they're teaching them. And the answer is you can't. Same thing applies with Scripture. Now, what we're going to do today, uh, we uh, it's Friday, and uh, this is uh, definitely a potpourri episode. I have uh, the T.D. Jakes uh, update that I didn't get to yesterday, but uh, let's talk about how we're going to do things today, and we'll talk about the order that we're going to be taking a look at them in. We are going to begin with a... Um, well, uh, uh, kind of a news story. This comes from the Pulpit and Pen uh, website, which is run by uh, Jordan Hall. And the, the headline reads, A big evangelical leader stood up to Glenn Beck. And we're going to listen to Glenn Beck's statement uh, because there's a, I, there's a huge irony in the things that he's saying. He, this is a, we'll be listening to a snippet from Glenn Beck's radio program where an evangelical leader basically stood up to him 
and uh, and said, "Listen, you know, if you're going to want me to talk, you know, if you know, if I were to talk for you or whatever, uh, then I would need to spend some time explaining the differences between uh, Christianity and Mormonism." And Glenn Beck did not take too kindly to that. So we'll uh, take a listen to uh, Glenn Beck on that. Then we'll switch gears. We have a Terry Savelle Foy update. And uh, she's going to be talking about the importance of clarity uh, in accelerating the dreams and visions that God has uh, laid on your heart. We'll take a break. When we come back, we will end with a, well, not end. We'll, we'll go into a Joel Osteen update about uh, his recent message about releasing control. And then we'll end our number one with um, T.D. Jakes talking about the wedding feast at Cana in Galilee in John chapter 2. And um, apparently a wedding gone wild. And so we'll listen to that. And then to end the program off, we will listen to a fantastic sermon by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley on uh, Joseph. We, uh, we played one of the sermons he did in, the, uh, in his Genesis series on Joseph. This one we will, uh, it's just a whiz-bang of a sermon. And uh, talking about the son who was dead and is now alive and how that points us to Jesus. And so... That's how we will spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you uh, make yourself comfortable. Uh, Fuzzy bunny slippers, by the way, they do enhance uh, your listener experience. Um, It's been a while since I've been plugging fuzzy bunny slippers, but they're getting more difficult to find nowadays. But anyway, so uh, we're going to get to the the program proper. And since we're kind of starting off with a news update, that requires us to do this. From the Pulpit and Pen website run by Jordan Hall of Reformation Montana, the headline reads, Big Evangelical Leader Stood Up to Glenn Beck. Big Evangelical Leader Stood Up to Glenn Beck. And they actually have a little video snippet that YouTube that has the audio from uh, Glenn Beck's radio program. And so what we're going to do is we're going to play this for you. And I want you to pay attention to what Glenn Beck is saying because there is an interesting double standard going on there that, well... For To the untrained ear, it'd be difficult to detect. Hopefully we can help you detect these kinds of things because, uh, yeah, we'll, you, this, this argument takes on a, a few different forms. Uh, and Glenn Beck is just presenting one of the forms in which this argument takes place in which there is a supreme double standard. But here is Glenn Beck from his December 9th radio program uh, explaining you know, his um, consternation and upsetness at a major evangelical leader who basically uh, won't partner with him unless uh, Glenn Beck understands that this major evangelical leader uh, must first explain the difference between his religion, Mormonism, and Christianity. So here's Glenn Beck. I had a conversation I had a conversation uh, off-air with a, uh, a big evangelical recently. And he said, you know, if I'm going to come on your show... Um, it's important for me to point out the differences between our religions. And quite honestly, I almost, <laughs> I almost hung up the phone. I was like, but I didn't. And the reason why I almost hung up the phone was because I thought, are you really this small? Are you really this small? Do you see what's happening to us right now? Nobody cares what my religion is. Nobody really cares what your religion is. What they want are are you putting your principles in action right now? What Demonstrate to me. Don't talk to me. Don't preach to me. Demonstrate to me. Who are you? What do you believe? What are you doing about it right now? You know, I, and here's kind of the irony in that. 
is that this evangelical leader is actually willing to take action. Yeah, preaching is a form of action, if you would. Uh, basically take what he believes and stand on his principles and take action by letting Glenn Beck and Glenn Beck's audience know that there is a huge difference between Christianity and Mormonism. Now, this argument takes on different forms. Um, let me give you an example of another form. You know, I had a, a conversation over the summer with a, a gentleman who told me in no uncertain terms that, well, um, he didn't think that it mattered what people in Christianity believed. He didn't think it mattered whatsoever, as long as they went to church. And uh, yet this person, um, well, let's just say, uh, has been an outspoken critic of me. Um, it's kind of weird, you know, an outspoken critic who's, you know, taken action to, uh, you know, in a sense to kind of silence me. And so what, but he made it very clear that, well, he believed it doesn't matter what people really believe, you know, doctrine, schmoctrine kind of thing, as long as people go to church. But then his actions were to, uh, you know, basically become a critic and, and silence me. And so the issue here is, is that, um, you know, the person saying things like this, saying, you know, Glenn Beck saying that, you know, listen, the doctrine doesn't matter. Who wants this stuff? You know, it, what matters are your actions. Um, you know, and he's saying, don't preach to me. But what is Glenn Beck doing? What actions are he, is he taking at the moment that he's talking? He's doing the same thing that people do when they preach. He's talking. Uh-huh. His words are, you know, are a form of action, advocacy, if you would. And so Glenn Beck is using a, a double standard in much the same way that somebody says, hey, it, it doesn't matter, you know, what people believe as long as they go to church. But you need to be quiet, Roseboro. We got to get rid of you. Um, yeah, see, the person who's saying that is dealing with a different standard altogether. And so the issue is, is that everybody has a theology, everybody has doctrine, everybody has a standard from which they're operating from. But when the person, when a person uses this type of argumentation, this is another example of it would be the, hey, judge not lest you be judged. You know, when somebody says, you know, you got to stop being critical of somebody's theology because God, you know, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, which is taken out of context. And then, of course, the person who's making that claim, what are they doing? They are judging uh-huh so here's glenn beck glenn beck you know tell Eddie, you you gotta you, nobody cares about your religion well if nobody cares about you know religion then they're not going to mind um this pastor explaining the difference between mormonism and christianity right um and people don't want to be preached to but what is glenn beck doing right now he's preaching to people weird huh it's a strange double standard how that works 20-somethings don't go to church anymore because church doesn't do anything. Mm, the reason why 20-somethings don't go to church anymore is because church doesn't do anything. Huh, no, I, I, yeah, no, I think the reason why non-believers don't go to church is because, well, they're non-believers and they're dead in their trespasses and sins and hostile to God. You're going to sit here and you're going to talk about it? Are you going to talk about the things that change lives? Are you going to do the things that change lives? Don't yet, Glenn Beck. What is he doing right now? He's not doing anything except for talking. But talking is a form of doing, is it not? Talk to me about theology. Talk to me about God in practice. Mm, don't talk to me about theology. Talk to me about God in practice. But is this not a theological statement on his part? Is it not a theological statement to say that what matters is not 
you know, words but actions? That's a theological statement made with words, isn't it? Can I be a better man? How can I survive today? Mm-hmm. How can I be a better man? How can I survive today? Yeah, that's the important thing. But don't talk to me about theology, which is, in fact, well, giving details of a theology. And he's doing it with words rather than actions. Isn't that weird? Strange double standard that we live in that people can somehow think that they're taking the high road. You know, we don't need actions. We need words. Well, you're speaking words right now and saying that. Yeah, it's it's just, again, you know, if it weren't for the fact that we had a corrupt, sinful, fallen nature and that our reason is also fallen as well. Uh, I doubt statements like that would be tolerated because, you know, you have a little bit of, well, brain, a little bit of an understanding of just basic logic, and you realize that the person making the statement is, is well, playing with a rigged deck. You know, they're claiming innocence <laughs> uh, uh, while accusing somebody of the very thing that they're doing while they're actually accusing the person of doing it. Strange how that works, isn't it? Moving along. Hiya, Bobby. Hi, Ken. You want to go for a ride? Sure, Ken. Jump in. Yep, time for a Terry Savelle Foy update. our uh, Terry Savelle Foy update music. I'm a Barbie girl. <clears throat> Always is challenging to play that here at Fighting for the Faith. It just wrecks my testosterone levels. Anyway, what we're going to be listening to is uh, Terry Savelle Foy giving us, well, principles regarding how to accelerate um, things so that we can have the dreams and visions that God has laid on our heart, <laughs> which is not taught anywhere in Scripture. But now, listen, listen, don't, don't let... Uh, you know, the details of what the biblical texts say actually get in the way of what we say and teach regarding God. You know, you know what's the point in letting the Bible do that? You know, like govern our thinking and our doctrine. <laughs> it's like you would expect that, you know, that with an attitude like that, that God actually inspired every word of Scripture or something, you know. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, here's Terry Savelle Foy. Hey, thank you for watching this week. This whole month of December, I am talking about something that I find vitally important, and it is on acceleration. How to accelerate your progress when it comes to the dreams and the goals that God's put in your heart. I believe there are... Mm-hmm. Accelerate your progress. <laughs> what, what if I'm a procrastinator? I mean, you know, is God upset if I'm, ex- you know, if I'm purposely applying principles to decelerate the dreams and vision that's, that God has laid on my heart, you know? things you can do to actually speed things up. Something that could take 20 years could happen in three years or five years if you apply the right principles. So I encourage you to watch every podcast this month so that you're on, you know, pace with us to learn all these principles to accelerate your progress. So this week in particular, I want to talk about something that I find crucial to being successful, and that is clarity. Mm, clarity helps accelerate the dreams and visions that God has laid on my heart. Clarity. Yeah. I'm 
I'm sure clarity is an important thing when you're goal setting. Um, but to somehow say that God has laid a dream or a vision. So, okay, so let's uh, maybe I should apply this to my life, you know, because I have this dream. I, I, I have this vision, you know, of of a church where, you know, somebody like Terry Savelle Foy would never be tolerated because she doesn't actually teach what God's word says. She comes to us in the name of God to help us with God problems that you know, with solutions that are not even offered in scripture. She doesn't abide by sound doctrine. So I'm envisioning a church where people like Joel Osteen, Terry Savelle Foy, Terry Savelle Foy's father, um, you know, TD Jakes and others, what I mean would I mean they would end up having to get, you know, jobs at Walmart. Um, because nobody in the Christian church would listen to them, tolerate them, put up with them, support their ministries. Okay. Okay. So I, I think I got some clarity along the lines here of, you know, this, this dream or vision. So what do I need to do in order to accelerate this to make it happen quicker again? Clarity produces results. You know, you will be amazed at what you can accomplish when you get clear on what you want. In fact, I was reading something about a guy named H.L. Hunt. He was, um, his life was the inspiration for the TV show Dallas, which is where we're located, right near Dallas. In fact, J.R. Ewing, that character was based on perceptions of this man, H.L. Hunt. So he was a bankrupt cotton farmer who became a multi-billionaire, not millionaire. And in a TV interview, they asked him, they said, what has caused you to be so financially successful and what could you tell others to help them be financially wealthy. He said, only two things are required. Number one, he said, decide exactly what you want to accomplish. And number two, determine what price you're willing to pay to get it. Yeah, and you know, it's funny you would say that because, you know, Jesus said, you know, what could a person give in exchange for his soul? Yeah, what's it, you know, what's it matter if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of people who are willing to pay a high price. Yeah. Um, what does this have to do with what Jesus taught exactly, Terry? It makes me think about a quote from Mark Twain, how he basically said the same thing. He said, I can teach anybody how to get what they want in life. Problem is, I can't find anybody who can tell me what they truly want. And that is where most people fail on their way to success is they don't know exactly what they want. They're not clear on it. You've got to get crystal clear on what you want, especially with the new year coming. 2015 is just around the corner and you need to be crystal clear on what you want to see accomplished. Do you want to be debt free? Is it all of your debt or is it? I'd like for American evangelicalism to get rid of the heretics and to be heresy free. How's that? Is that clear enough? credit card? Is it your school loans? What is it that you want to accomplish in 2015? You know, are you wanting to open a daycare? Do you want to save $10,000? Do you want to open a dance studio? Do you want to save $100,000? Do you want to become a realtor? Do you want to go on a mission trip? Okay, where? Where do you want to go? When do you want to go? Who do you want to go with? You've got to get crystal clear if you want to accelerate your progress. You know, I believe that clarity is one of the single most important keys to success. In fact, you may have heard of this famous study from Yale University from the graduating class of 1953. Now, this has been published in so many success books and magazines that it's gone all over the world. Success books and, yeah. It's as if Christianity is all about achieving personal success. When did that become the, the, the primary ministry and mission of Christianity? 
But what happened was in 1953, they did research on this graduating class and found that 3% of the graduates had a clear list of dreams and goals that they wanted to accomplish during their lifetime. Well, 20 years later, they went back and researched that same graduating class and found that the 3% who wrote their dreams and goals had a clear plan of success. Had a, they were not only healthier and happier, but they had achieved more financial success than the 97% combined together. Mm-hmm. How many of them um, are penitent believers in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? Because class of 19, what, 53, you said? You know, they're kind of getting up there in age. I'm sure a few of them have, you know, died. Um, did they die trusting in Jesus? Were they disciples of Jesus? Were they baptized? Uh, did, you know, you know all of the important stuff. Did they go to church and receive the Lord's Supper? I mean, did they hear Christ and him pru- uh, crucified for their sins? I mean, yeah, I mean, 1953, I mean, th- that, that graduating class, I mean, yeah. They're getting a little long in the tooth now, and uh, you know they're going to be going to see Jesus soon. So think about that. Now, like I said, that study has gone all over the world, and that is just one proof, one research that's shown how vital it is that you get clear on what you want to accomplish. You know, I've said on other podcasts how years ago I wrote in my... Um, you know, thinking five years into the future, and I wrote things about wanting to impact the nation of France. Now, when I wrote that, I didn't know anyone in France. I'd only been there one time on a two-day little trip. I didn't know how I was going to impact the nation, but I was crystal clear that France is the mission field that I want to reach. Well, is it a coincidence <clears throat> that my books are translated into French? The- um, uh, should I say no? <laughs> Okay, so you set that as a goal and found a way to make it happen. It's almost like magic. Not not really. Our untangled book called Delier. Is it a coincidence that a French publisher from the south of France came into my life and now my books are in French? Why aren't they in German? Well, I've never been clear on wanting to impact, you know, through the German language. I'm not opposed to that, but I've never been crystal clear that I want everything translated in German or Italian or Russian. No, I've been crystal clear on wanting all of my products translated into French. Well, yeah, do your products proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins? I mean, yeah, you may be impacting people in France. But uh, you're kind of doing it along the lines of a success coach. You're kind of like the female version of Tony Robbins. And uh, Tony Robbins, isn't he a Buddhist? I mean, you're pretty much kind of packaging his ideas up with a Christian, very thin, thin, I mean, super thin Christian veneer. Um, But I don't see any difference between what you're doing and what Tony Robbins does. And at the end of the day, when people are, you know, dead and buried six feet under, how is this helping them really? When you're clear, when the vision is clear, the results will appear. That's what happens when you get crystal clear. And, you know, this happens in every area of life. In fact, I heard a story recently about a lady who um, had a dream to lose weight, and she went to the department store, and she bought a dress 10 sizes too small. She said she was so embarrassed, she even told the sales clerk it's for somebody else. But she said she hung that dress up in her closet. So every day when she opened that door, she saw her vision. She wasn't vague about it. She didn't just say, I want to. So it was a vision dress, not a vision board. Got it, yeah. Wait, her vision was so crystal clear. That's the size I want to be. 
Every day she looked at that vision. Now, it didn't happen overnight, but eventually she wore that very dress. Yeah. Um, again, why are we focusing so much on the temporal world? I mean, the thing I'm kind of shooting for is after I die, not hearing Jesus say these words, depart from me, I never knew you. I, I don't want to hear Jesus say that. Instead, I want to hear from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah, something along those lines. Um, and so, I mean, is how's that for clarity and, um, you know, having a vision for the future, if you would. And the nice thing is, is that I don't even have to work for that. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the clarity of that vision actually comes from Scripture because Jesus has accomplished that all for me. I'm not saved by anything I do. I'm saved by everything that Christ has done for me. It's, again, it's Christianity has exchanged the eternal for the temporal, and it's sad because the temporal is passing away. And you know, it's you know, literally taking the 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 real, the true gold coin, and exchanging it for counterfeit monopoly money. I mean, yeah, monopoly money is. is I guess it's fun when you're playing monopoly, but. It's not good for much else than that. Yeah, all right. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. Joel Osteen update and a T.D. Jakes update to round out hour number one. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes. That's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. 
But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand, you turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong, that's cheating, you can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong, that's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to realize that saying judge not lest you be judged is a form of judging, which is a double standard. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we're doing here without it. And just a reminder, if you would like to get your Pirate Christian Radio tchotchkes, you know, t-shirts and earrings and things like that uh, to help support the station during our bake sale for Christmas. Go to fightingforthefaith.com, click on the bake sale link and uh, order your Christmas uh, Pirate Christian Radio gear and all the proceeds go to help support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio help us make budget for the end of the year. And again, thank you again because we cannot do what we're doing here without it. Moving along. 
Yeah, time for a Joel Osteen update. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, all by myself in an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. That's right. That's uh, Chip Skylark and Shiny Teeth and Me, our Joel Osteen update music. All right. Now, what we're going to be listening to is Joel Osteen's latest message entitled Release Control. Now, if you've listened to Fighting for the Faith for any length of time, you know that uh, Joel Osteen has a template that he follows, and he's going to stick to that template. We're going to hear a joke. We're going to hear him say, this is my Bible. You're going to hear me say that he's not going to teach it, and then he's going to proceed to not teach from the Bible. (laughs) And yet he's considered to be, well, America's pastor. Here's Joel Osteen in his message about releasing control. Here we go. Discover the sinner in you. Well, God bless you. It's always a joy to come into your homes. And if you're ever in our area, please stop by and be a part of one of our services. I promise you, we'll make you feel right at home. But thanks so much for tuning in. And thank you again for coming out. I like to start with something funny. And one day, Adam was feeling very lonely. God said, Adam, I'm going to make you a companion. This is going to be called a woman. This person will cook for you and wash your clothes. She will bear you children and never ask you to get up in the middle of the night. She will not nag you. She will always agree with you. And if you ever have a disagreement, she'll be the first to admit that she was wrong. (laughs) Adam said, wow, God, what will a woman like this cost? God said, an arm and a leg. Adam said, what can I get for a rib? And the rest is history. (laughs) Hold up your Bibles. Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. No, you won't. I boldly confess. My mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. I want to talk to you today about releasing control. It's easy to get so focused on our goals, our dreams, that we're not going to be happy until it happens. Wow. Uh, Yeah, I guess the reason why people become so focused on their goals and dreams is because there's all these people masquerading as pastors telling them to focus on their goals and dreams because God has a big dream and goal and purpose for you to fulfill. He's going to put it on your heart and you need to, you know, practice techniques for acceleration using clarity in order to, you know, make your goals and dreams happen. Uh huh. Okay. So yeah, you, you know, there, apparently there's there's a there's a dark side to that type of preaching. We put God in a box and we tell Him what we want. Put God in a box. Uh huh. Yeah, I'd like to see you try. When we want it, how to do it, who to use, we've got it all figured out. But the Scripture says God's ways are not our ways; they are better than our ways. 
And if you yeah, I think the text reads, God's ways are not our ways, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and that's not in talking about, well, you know, the importance of releasing control when you're frustrated because you're overly, too overly focused on your dreams and visions and things like that happening in, happening in your life. Only going to be happy if it happens your way, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. God can see the big picture for our lives. He knows what's around every curve. He can see the detours, the dead ends, the shortcuts, things that we cannot see. A better approach is to say, God, this is what I want. This is what I'm believing for. But God, you know what's best for me. I don't have to have it my way. God, I trust you. Ah, I see. So you, you can focus on your dreams and visions, but just be advised that God can make it happen his way and not necessarily your way. And uh-huh, Right. Okay. When you release control, it takes the pressure off. Life gets so much more free. You're not always fighting, trying to make your plans work out. And sometimes we're so focused on what we want that it's out of balance. Anything you have to have in order to be happy, the enemy can use against you. If you think, I have to have this promotion, my spouse has to change, I've got to get married to be happy, or I've got to have good weather, I've got a big outdoor event planned, I got to have a pastor that actually rightly handles God's word and preaches Christ and him crucified for our sins. No, a mature attitude says, even if it doesn't work out my way, even if my plans don't happen, God, I'm still going to enjoy my life knowing that you're on the throne. Here's the key. Uh Uh When our dreams and goals start to frustrate us, when we're not at peace, not enjoying where we are because we're so focused on what we want, that's a sign that we're holding on too tightly. And when you hold on to what you want so tightly, it can almost become like an idol. You're so focused on it, that's all you think about, all you pray about, consumes your time and energy, that's out of balance. One of the best prayers that we can ever pray is God, not my will, but let your will be done. When you release control, you're showing God by your actions that you trust Him. There are times in life God will ask you to release the thing that you want the most. It's a test. If you will pass... So uh, God's God's going to ask you to release the thing that you want the most, and that's a test. Yeah, says, yeah, and see, if you pass the test, then God will give it back to you. Oh, this cannot be going well. I, I'm fearful of where he's heading. Pass that test. At some point, God will either give you back what you wanted or bring something better into your life. And which biblical text says this? This is what happened with Abraham. I knew it. I knew, I knew that's where he was going. Yeah, he's going to totally biff the uh, story of uh, Abraham and Isaac. His son, Isaac. Yep, I was right. The child he had dreamed about year after year finally showed up. The child he dreamed about? No, the, the child that God promised him. Big difference. Abraham loved him more than anything in the world. One day, God told Abraham to put Isaac on the altar to sacrifice the thing that meant the most to him. It wasn't easy, but Abraham made this decision to release control. 
He made this decision to release control. Let's take a look at that text because dollars to donuts, I don't think that um, Joel Osteen's going to actually open up his Bible and, you know, preach the narrative. Uh, No, he's more interested in summarizing it so that he can make it say what he wants it to say rather than actually deal with the thorny issue of what it does say. And by the way, that text is not about releasing control uh, so that, you know, when, you know, that, and this is not some promised pattern that God's going to do this in your life either. So uh, the way we look at this text instead is that it typologically is pointing us to Jesus and what he has done for us. Here's what it says, Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son. Yeah, I point this out every time I read this text. How many sons did Abraham have at this point? There was Ishmael, and then there was Isaac. So it's weird that God is saying, take your son, your only son. What's going on here? Yeah, there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, He took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now notice that Isaac is carrying the wood for the offering. This kind of looks, it sounds kind of like what Jesus did when he carried his own cross, right? And so he's now asking the obvious question, Hey, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son, and no truer words could Abraham have spoken. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, Jesus was laid on top of the wood before they nailed his hands and feet to the cross, and then they raised him up, right? Oh, and by the way, where this is taking place, same mountain, Mount Moriah. This is where the Temple Mount is today. So on the slopes of Mount Moriah, there's Isaac about to be bound and, you know, well, about to be sacrificed. And later, God did sacrifice, did provide the lamb for the burnt offering. It was Jesus. Same slopes, by the way, same mountain. So then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do not uh, or do not do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. What's in thickets? Thorns. So here we've got a ram with a quote-unquote crown of thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And it truly was. Because, you know, several thousand years later, Jesus was the lamb provided by God. 
who was sacrificed on Mount Moriah, who is God's Son, His only begotten Son. Kind of get the point? <clears throat> yeah, this isn't about some pattern that, you know, oh, you know, you want your dream or vision so bad for your life. Well, God's going to take it away from you only, you know, to only to test you so that he can give it back to you. That's not what this text is teaching at all. He said, God, you know, this is what I've dreamed about. This is what I've wanted more than anything else. But God, I trust you. I can be happy even if it doesn't work out my way. When God saw his willingness to put on the altar the thing that meant most to him, then God said, no, don't do it. He gave him his son back. The question is, can you be happy if it doesn't work out your way? And that's not what that text is about at all. Will you keep a good attitude if the business slows down, the medical report isn't good? Maybe you're believing, standing on a promise for your health to get better. When you have the attitude, even if I don't get better, I'm still going to have a smile. I'm still going to be good to people. I'm still going to give God praise. You're doing what Abraham did. You're putting that dream on the altar. No, you're not even close to doing anything remotely close to what Abraham did. When you can pass the test that you don't have to have the problem turn around to be happy... You don't have to have the dream come to pass. To yeah, I don't recall uh, that, you know, that the, the text there in Genesis saying that, oh, and Abraham, yeah, he was able to remain happy while he was lifting the knife. <laughs> yeah, like that's was the key to the whole thing. Enjoy your life. You're proving to God that you trust him. That's when God will give you the desires of your heart. When we... Uh, Huh, really? And so as soon as you pass the test by staying happy in the midst of after losing everything that you've had to lay on the altar, well, then that'll prove to God and then God will give you the desires of your heart. Yeah, no biblical text says this, especially the text from Genesis 22. We were trying to acquire this facility, the former compact center. I wanted it so badly that it consumed me. I was constantly thinking about it, praying about it, talking about it. It seemed like the harder I tried, the worse things got. More people came against us. Lawsuits were filed. I would wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, wondering if it was going to happen. One day I realized that I was so set on having it my way, I wasn't enjoying where I was. Oh no, you were in risk of not seeing your dream fulfilled. So you laid the compact center on the altar? I wasn't going to be happy if we didn't acquire it. I had to do what I'm asking you to do. I said, God, I believe that this facility is supposed to be ours. Deep down, God, I believe you saved it just for us. But even if it doesn't happen, I'm going to still be my best at the other location. I'm still going to be happy and enjoy my life. I release control. God, do it your way. It wasn't long after that that things started falling into place. We won the votes from the city council members. The lawsuits were settled. Here we are today. When you release control, you are passing a very important test. Uh-huh, really? The trust test. You're saying... The, the trust test. And see, you know, Abraham and Joel Osteen, I mean, those two are like exactly the same. Now, yeah. God, I believe you know what's best for me. Many times, like with Abraham, 
like with this facility, that's when God will release back to you the very thing that you're believing for. Notice how he said it. Like Abraham, like this facility, God will release back. See, Joe Osteen has lived the Abraham life, man. I mean, he, he applied the principles, dude, and he experienced the same kind of success that Abraham did. See, he, there's a living testimonial. This stuff works. Yeah. Um, and you see, the problem here is, is that that text is not about you passing a test, the happy test, uh, you know, the control test so that God can give back to you, you know, the compact center or, you know, your business or anything of the sort. That was type and shadow pointing us to Christ's death on the cross for our sins. Yeah, because as it was promised on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And it was provided in Jesus. And Joel Osteen is utterly clueless about the fact that that passage is about Jesus. He thinks it's about him in the compact center. And it's not. <sighs> Moving along. I've got... Time for a money-grubbing televangelist update. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira. Now the Deutsche Mark's getting dearer. And my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. Nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money, you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, money, money. Everyone must hanker for the bunchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phase. For it's money, money, money makes the world. That's the Monty Python money song. All right, uh, money-grabbing televangelist today we'll be listening to is uh, T.D. Jakes of the Potter's House out there in Dallas. And uh, he's supposedly going to be preaching for us from uh, John chapter 2 and the wedding feast of the Cana of Galilee. And probably one of the more bizarre mishandlings of this text that I have ever heard. But uh, here's uh, T.D. Jakes and his message entitled, Wedding Gone Wild. Here we go. So chapter one, we are looking at God wrapped up in a flesh suit. And it is on, on the tapestry of this theology that he steps into chapter two. He goes from saying that Jesus is God to chapter two, Jesus is at a party. Yeah, clearly an awkward moment there. Yeah, Jesus is at a party. I wonder what that means. Well, let's continue. A wow party. A party that has gone on for several days. A party that is so wild that even though the wedding planners had planned for a certain amount of consumption... You do know that uh, nowhere in the text of John does it say it was a wild party. The Bible said when they had run out of wine. I want to talk just a little bit about this wedding. There's, there's, there's something. It, it wasn't a crisis. Nobody was dying. Nobody had, had done like 
like they did with Paul falling out off the out the window and broke the neck and had to be resurrected. This was not a crisis, it was a party. A, a, a three-day party. It's enough, go home. Run out of wine, it's over. And here Jesus' mother brings him a problem that is not a problem and certainly not his problem. And he expresses his frustration. Woman, what am I going to do with you? You have to have had a, a type A extrovert expressive mama to understand the exasperation that comes up in your spirit. when Jesus said, woman, what am I going to do with you? Well, notice he's not actually reading the text. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Yeah, what Jesus said doesn't sound anything like what T.D. Jakes just said that Jesus said. Hmm, maybe he's twisting God's word. Let's read, read a little bit more now. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Yeah, the punchline to the Gospel of John is in, in the closing pages of it where John says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. So this miracle that was performed by Jesus, well, <clears throat> the end result was that his disciples believed in him. That's the punchline. So let's see what... Um, T.D. Jakes is going to do with this. You just think, oh, there she goes again. He says, he doesn't even call her mother. He says, woman, what am, what am I to do with thee? And then he exposes the source of his frustration. He says, woman, my hour has not yet come. This is not on my schedule. This is not on my itinerary. My hour has not yet come. But because of my relationship with you, I will do something for you that I didn't even plan to do because of the clout you have. Where are you finding this dialogue? Because it's not found in John 2. With me. If I had time, I would talk about unscheduled miracles. What? So this is apparently about unscheduled miracles. Oh, please, tell us more. 
the things that God does that wasn't even planned or expected, but because of your relationship, the kinds of things that he steps in and does for you. There, there are a few people in the Bible that got unscheduled miracles, like, like, like the, the, the man who was sick on the porches of palsy, and, and, and he was waiting on the angels to come and trouble the water. It wasn't the right time of year. The angel hadn't come. It wasn't the right time of year. Where are you getting these details? But, but Jesus still challenged his faith and said, Wilt thou be made whole? It's not the right time. It's not the right season. You're not even in the water. It's not the right place. But if you believe me, I'll step in and give you an unscheduled miracle. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Apparently, um, he's missed. Uh, he's noticed because he's not actually reading any of these biblical texts. He could just make it be about whatever he wants it to be about. And see, you know, when John wrote this, he wasn't trying to teach us the principle of unscheduled miracles. Yeah, he relayed this information because the miracle caused his disciples to believe in him. And of course, John says these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. So uh, T.D. Jakes is finding this hidden principle in here, the principle of the unscheduled miracle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in other words, he's pulling a fast one. He's bamboozling these folks. And, uh, you know, basically what's coming out of his mouth has nothing whatsoever to do with what this text teaches, what it actually says, and what it really means. Mary comes running to Jesus like the house is on fire. And she says, the problem here is that it's something that should be celebrative and wonderful. We have run out of wine. Woman, what am I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. She doesn't tell him what to do with her. She doesn't answer his question. She doesn't give him another word at all. She just turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. It might sound stupid. It might look crazy. It might not make any sense. But whatever he tells you to do, do it. What made her say that he didn't even tell her that he was going to do the miracle, but she had enough faith to believe that if I ask you to do it, you are going to... Oh, y'all don't hear what I'm saying. Oh, he is just the master manipulator. He's playing this crowd like, you know, a Stradivarius. I mean, wow. Yeah, Uh Yeah. definitely a, a master at his craft. Unfortunately, he's using it for evil. So she says, I I know he's going to do something. I know he's going to do something. I know he's going to do something. But he didn't tell her that he was going to use the servants to do it. But Mary understood that if God is going to do anything in the earth realm, he's going to do it through you. So she said, whatever Yeah, this is all part of the build-up, you know. Would you get in your neighbor's ear and holler at them and tell them you got to get involved in this? And how am I supposed to get involved in this miracle that already took place? That doesn't make any sense. Your miracle is not going to happen while you sit on your knees and pray. My miracle isn't going to happen. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, I don't see any promises here regarding my unscheduled miracles. Uh, you are literally pulling the wool over these people's eyes. Your miracle is not going to happen while you lay in the bed and wish. Your miracle is not going to happen just because you need it. You got to get involved. Yeah. Yeah, there's the turn right there. Yeah, you can see what's going on. Yeah, this is um, duplicity of the highest order. This is what it means to, how does Scripture put it, teach for shameful gain the things you ought not to teach? Yeah. Wow. And it's just so sad because all these people, they're eating this up. They think that this is just the best and most amazing teaching ever. And yet, they're not being taught the truth. They're being deceived by a false teacher, a false prophet. And as a result of it, they are literally still in danger of the fires of hell, maybe even more so now than when they had ever begun their walk as Christians. Very frightening indeed. What do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, money in there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with a good sermon from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley on the story of Joseph about the son who was dead and is alive again. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey! Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. We're 
back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end the week off with a good sermon. That's our modus operandi for uh, Friday evening. Let's do this right. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's great sermon comes to us via bethel evangelical free church hanley stoke on trent pastor gervais nicholas edward charmley presiding the text he will be preaching is genesis 45 and you're thinking all right genesis 45 well which verses yes genesis 45 and he will read the entire chapter before preaching The name of the sermon is The Living Son Who Was Dead. And Genesis 45 tells us the story of Joseph. In other words, Pastor Charmley is kind of keying in on the fact that Joseph typologically points us to none other than Jesus himself. And he does a fine job of doing that. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley in his sermon, The Living Son Who Was Dead. Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the book of Genesis and chapter 45, the 45th chapter of Genesis. We are here in the account of Joseph, the son of Jacob, who was hated by his brothers because his father favored him, they sold him into slavery. And God, by his grace, brought Joseph from the prison to the palace to be the second over all of the land of Egypt, to save the people from a terrible famine. His brothers came down to Egypt to buy grain. They did not recognize him. And he brought them through a test to see whether they had repented and to move them to repentance. They are brought first face to face with their guilt by the law. Then they are brought face to face with the grace of God. Now at last they stand before their brother. Genesis 45 Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians heard it, and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. 
For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither ploughing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth, and to save your lives by great deliverance. So now, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household, all that you have, come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin that see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and after that his brothers talked with him. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come, so it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan, bring your father and your households, and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded to do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provision for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed, and he said to them, See that you not become troubled along the way. Then they went up out of Egypt, and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still, because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. We pray God to bless this portion of his precious and glorious word. Our text this evening is found in the chapter that we read, Genesis 45 and verse 3. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. 
They had imagined that they were standing before a pitiless Egyptian, a man who would have no sympathy with them. Now they found that they were standing before the very one that they had so horribly wronged so many years before. They were standing not before a man whom God was using, despite the man's ignorance of the fact, to judge them for the sin they had committed, but before the very one against whom they had sinned. No wonder they were dismayed in his presence. Because initially they had thought, well, this is a man who is seeking for his own ends to enslave us. This is nothing personal. Now they find it is Joseph and they are convinced, yes, it is personal. And we deserve it because the law has done its work and convicted them of sin. They are here as the sinner before God, the Creator. Initially, the sinner is proud in his sin, impenitent. The law comes and does its work, it smites, it wounds, and it says, all that you have done, you have done against God. You have not sinned against impersonal forces, but you have sinned against a God who is God and holy and just. Well, may the sinner then be dismayed and horrified. How can we escape? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But Joseph had not treated his brothers the way that he had because he wanted to destroy them. He had done it because he wanted to save them. And so it is when God ever awakens a man, a woman, to the reality of sin. He does not do it that he may slay us, but that he may make us alive, that he may pardon, forgive. God brings us to repentance because he delights to forgive. Joseph put his brothers in this position because he delighted to forgive them. And he delighted that they should come to repentance and they should be right with God, as well as right with him. The law and the gospel are applied to bring repentance and salvation. And so we see here Joseph's plan and its success in bringing salvation to his family. And behind it all there stands God whose plan it was, in whom Joseph had an unwavering faith. So we see first of all the discovery, the fact, I am Joseph, he says. We see then the dispatch as he says to his brothers, hurry and go up to my father. And we see the delight of Jacob. The spirit of Jacob revived. So we have a discovery, the dispatch, and the delight. And first of all, we have the discovery, I am Joseph. 
all that he had been doing led up to this point where he told them the truth. Now he had never said to them that he wasn't Joseph, he had just never said that he was. And they had not seen him for 20 years. He had been a teenager when they had last seen him. He was now a middle-aged man. Twenty years and more had passed. And moreover, he was an Egyptian official. He would dress like an Egyptian. He would shave his head like an Egyptian. He would wear a wig as an Egyptian would. And he would wear makeup as an Egyptian would. He dressed as an Egyptian. He looked like an Egyptian. I have said it before. If you wanted to have a civilization whose fashions hid the facts of a man's true identity, the Egyptians are the perfect example, perfect civilization, in that their officials wore wigs and makeup in public. So they would look at Joseph and see an Egyptian. But now he tells them the truth, I am Joseph, and they know it. This explains everything. This is why at the banquet he could seat them in order of age. With Reuben, the oldest, at the top of the table, and Benjamin, the youngest, each in their right place in order of age. This is how he knew. And it was not, now they think about it, it was not that he was unconsciously following God's plan to bring to their remembrance their wickedness in selling him into slavery. It is that he has very carefully put them in prison as they imprisoned him. He has very carefully given them to think in terms of them becoming slaves as they made him a slave. All the way he has brought their sin to their remembrance. They have wronged him. And now the man who had been powerless and helpless as a boy in their hands is the most powerful man in the land of Egypt. They had the power before when they sold him. Now he has all the power in his hands. Well, no wonder they were horrified. No wonder they were dismayed. Because they knew they deserved nothing more or less than the full punishment of all that they had done wrong. They had no defense before him. They did not fall on their knees and say, well, we had a reason for doing it. They had no defense. Just as God, by his law, reveals to the sinner that he has no defense. There is no excuse for the sins that we have committed, not one. We cannot stand before the throne of God and say, God, you are unjust to judge me for my sins, but every mouth is stopped. And men have no defense before him. And then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they wondered. Because his tone was not, come near me that I may 
pronounce sentence against you, but come near me, because I love you, that I may have mercy upon you. And again, he repeated, yes, I know all that you have done, but now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves. They could not be grieved or angry with him or with God, but with themselves for the wrong that they had committed, their consciences accusing them. Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. God is behind all of this, he says. Even so it was. When Peter preached to the crowd on the day of Pentecost, he could tell them, you condemn the Holy One and the just. You sold the Lord Jesus Christ. You condemned him, but Peter did not stand up on Pentecost to preach mere damnation, but to preach salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples to begin preaching the gospel at Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that slays the prophets, that slew the Lord of glory. And Jesus says to his disciples, now be careful that you begin with these most guilty sinners, with these who have committed the most aggravated the most terrible sin, these whose guilt is greater than that of any other, because they crucify the Lord of glory, tell them that there is salvation for them. And a great number even of priests, those who were complicit in the very murder of the Lord Jesus, believed. Christ, you see, says to the guilty sinner, Come unto me. This is a true saying, and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, said the Apostle. He did not play down his sin, but rather he said, I feel it to be the most terrible guilt, but Christ came for sinners, and therefore he would not conceal his guilt, he would not make excuses, but rather he would embrace the Lord Jesus who first embraced him, the one who had borne all his sins, who had died in his very place upon the tree. And Christ comes to us and says, yes, by your sins you have slain me, by your sins you have pierced me through, but I did it all. I bore it to save and to deliver you from your sins. He forgives. And this is the great discovery, the great revelation of God, that he is a pardoning God. That there is forgiveness with him that he may be feared. Oh, it is a terrible thing not to believe in the forgiveness of sins. But so many do not. 
Now the devil will have us not believe in the forgiveness of sins in two ways. First of all, he will go to us and say, well, you are not so bad after all. You do not need forgiveness, for you have nothing to be forgiven. But he will also come, and he will say, you are so bad, you cannot be forgiven. The devil is a liar. That is his native language. When he speaks a lie, he speaks his own. But God says, you have sinned. And here is a saviour for sinners. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Here is love revealed. Not revenge. Revenge leads to tragedy. But pardon leads to great joy. And God is a pardoning God. God is love. And love seeks salvation. Ever salvation. The great discovery of grace and mercy. And then we come to the dispatch. Hurry and go up to my father, he says. He reveals to them that this is God's love. This is God's plan. For you see, behind all of Joseph's forgiveness is Joseph's faith in God. He never let go of that faith. Even when his brothers sold him into slavery and he was taken far away, he never let go of the God whom he had been taught about by his father. The God who had spoken to him in those dreams of the night. He never forgot that God, even when it seemed that all was lost and that he would never see his father or brothers again. He believed, he trusted that God was still keeping him for his purposes. And this is the great secret of why Joseph never became bitter or angry with his brethren. God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Father to Pharaoh was a a way that the Egyptians spoke of their very high officials. And you see here is the point. He saw behind the evil of his brothers the goodness of God. That God meant all this for good to be a blessing that Joseph would bless all of Egypt and save a great multitude alive. And are we not here reminded of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Pharisees, the scribes, they wanted him out of the way. They wanted him dead. The priests, they wanted him out of the way. They feared that if, if, He remained alive. The Romans would come and do away with the temple. Well, of course, the Romans did anyway. They feared him as well. It is expedient. 
It's expedient, said Caiaphas, that one man should die rather than the whole people perish. And not knowing what he said, he spoke a prophecy of the Saviour dying for his own. But Caiaphas and the priests thought we must get rid of this man. They again conspired in their wickedness. Pontius Pilate. He protested, but he was not strong enough to stand up. And he, as the Roman governor, signed the death certificate, the death warrant. Let this man be crucified, he said. Herod said, let this man be crucified. He will not entertain me. All of these wicked men conspired together to kill the Lord of glory. Ah, but God sent Jesus to the cross to save many people alive, to save men not from starvation, but from everlasting wrath and everlasting hell. And so the greatest crime that man committed behind it all was the unsearchable purpose, eternal purpose of God, to save his people alive. The remnant, the one man, saved many by his one offering of himself. God did it all. And he did it all for sinners. Not the righteous, but sinners. What a wonder it is. And so, explaining the secret purposes of God, Joseph says now to his brethren, go, hurry and go up. To my father, tell Jacob, tell him, tell him that the one he believed was dead is alive and is a saviour. I am he who lives and was dead, Jesus says, and behold I am alive forevermore and hold the keys of death and of Hades. I am exalted on high, Jesus tells us. As a saviour, Lord and saviour, God has set him down at his right hand to save and to deliver. Because he was betrayed, because he was sold and given up to death, he is exalted to be the saviour and the Lord. Had Joseph never been sold into Egypt, he would never have been a saviour. He would never have been the Lord of the land. So it is with Jesus. He came into the world. What shall I say? He said, save me from this hour. For this hour I came into the world that I may offer myself and die. And so Jesus says to us, when we remember our sins, ah, but I came to save you from them. Do not be troubled, but tell others of the living one who was dead, of the one who has power to deliver and to give rest unto his people. He dispatches them with this word of grace, this good news, that Joseph is alive and not dead. And so he dispatches all his people, all those who have heard this word of pardon and salvation, to tell others that Jesus is alive. 
that he is not dead, the tomb could not hold him, the grave is empty. And he lives, he lives, who once was dead, and he lives to save and to deliver all those who trust in him. He brings the gospel of the risen and living Lord. And so we come to the last point, delight, the spirit of Jacob revived. The brothers came to their father and told him, saying, Joseph is still alive and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still, because he did not believe them. It is too good to be true, he said. Too good to be true. Joseph is dead. It has been over twenty years. He has come to terms at last with this, what he believes to be a fact that Joseph is dead. But of course, Joseph was never dead. The fact was not a fact after all. And he had lamented. He had wept. Genesis chapter 42, verse 36. Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin, all these things are against him. But they weren't. All those things were for him. God had raised up and sent a saviour who he did not yet know about. The one who was dead was alive. He received Joseph back, as it were, from the dead. Too good to be true? No, no. True and wonderful and glorious. He had been deceived by those who had told him, your brother, that your son rather is dead. Now they told him the good news, he is alive. And he did not believe them. He could not believe them. How can this be? But all he did believe in the end. When, he, when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived, he saw the salvation, the tokens of it, the evidence of it, we see the tokens of the resurrection of Christ. We see the evidence in the scriptures that he has given. These things are written that you may believe, and that believing you may have life in his name, writes the evangelist. We see those who he has delivered. Christians converted out of every nation redeemed by the blood of Christ, the evidence and the truth convinces, the truth reaches the heart, the words and the works of the risen one, the living one. And then Israel said, it is enough. And you can picture this man suddenly as the realization comes to him. He is alive. Joseph is alive. It is enough. 
What a marvel it is. I will go and see him before I die. Christian, is it not enough that Jesus is alive? And we shall see him as he is. And yes, unless he comes first, we shall die. But we shall live again. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, shall not die. I am the resurrection and the life, he tells us. And whoever believes in me will never die. And whoever dies believing in me, I will raise him up. And what a marvellous thing it is to know it is enough that I am his and he is mine. It is enough that there is a saviour who has taken my sin and has borne it all himself. Oh, Christian, you look and you consider your baptism. Buried with him in baptism, but you know, you went down, as it were, as the one bearing your sin, but you did not go up as a sinner. You came up as a saint, as it were. You came up as one who was washed, who is cleansed, who is purified. You look back at your sins, but you find that they are not really yours anymore. They are Christ's. He has taken it all away. And he says, I am your Saviour, your Lord. He comes to forgive and to pardon. He only raises, he only mentions your sins to you to say your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. That's why Christ tells you of your sin. That he may tell you that they are forgiven. Again, Joseph only told his brothers of the sin they had committed that he might tell them it was forgiven. The burden has been laid upon Christ. He has taken it all. And so we rejoice. We are like Bunyan's pilgrim who, as it were, danced for joy when that burden was taken off his back. My sin is not mine anymore. It is pardoned. It is sunk in the sepulchre of Christ, it is sunk in the ocean of God's forgetfulness, pardoned. He died. Christ died. He died apparently powerless, apparently helpless. He died alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we may say the same was true in a figure of Joseph. He died as far as his father was concerned, and he was helpless before his brothers. He was powerless. He was horribly and terribly alone. But the good news comes to Jacob. He is alive. He is alive, and he has all power and authority. 
And he does not live for himself alone, but for you. And so we say of Christ, so we hear of Christ, he lives. He is arisen from the dead and he is seated on the throne of the universe. Not for himself alone, but he is exalted to give salvation to you and to me. And if we are in Christ, we are seated there with him in the heavenly places. It is enough. It is enough that God in his providence has provided a Savior. That he makes to us in his gospel, in the scriptures, this glorious revelation that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We did not see it until he opened our eyes to behold the truth. And the truth is a wonderful truth to be shared with all, that Christ is alive, exalted as Saviour and Lord. It is enough. It is enough. What joy, what delight there is in this fact. It is enough that Christ is alive, and he is mine, and I am his forever. Amen. Amen. What'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, by carrying death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.